camera. Thanks, Dad, for always believing in me and encouraging me. Thanks, Dad, for teaching me how to put oil in my car. Thanks, Dad, for keeping my car running and for spending three weeks fixing my sprinklers. Thank you, Dad, for never giving up on me. Thanks, Pop, for accepting me for who I am. Thanks, Dad, for being a great role model. Thank you, Dad, for surfing with me. Thanks, Dad, for watching Disney movies with all four of us. Thanks, Dad, for being a living example of what a godly man looks like. Thanks, Daddy, for taking me to Charger Games and tailgating with me. Thanks, Dad, for working so hard and having a great sense of humor. Thanks, Dad, for picking me up at school in your suspenders. Dad, thank you for never giving up and during the hardest times in your life. You're always there for us. Dad, I love you so much, and you're really great. Thanks, Dad, for cooking for me and my family every Sunday night. Thanks, Dad, for being willing to repair a relationship. Thanks, Dad, for teaching me how to drive a tractor. Thank you so much for surviving cancer, Dad. I don't know what I'd do without you in my life. Thanks, Dad, for helping me with all those job interviews. Thanks, Daddy, for helping me on those long homework nights. Thanks, Dad, for being my biggest fan. Thanks, Dad, for teaching me how to be a man. Thanks, Dad, for always coming to my track meets and rooting me on. Thanks, Dad, for loving me no matter what. Thanks, Pops, for showing me how to love my family. Thanks, Dad, for the love that you showed and the hugs that you used to give me. Thank you so much. I thank God for you. Well, happy Father's Day and good morning. You know, this morning I want to talk about some of the challenges that uh, men face in life. You know, one of the challenges that I seem to have to face every five years comes when I renew my driver's license. It's at that point I have to decide whether I'm going to be an organ donor or not. How many of you have decided to be organ donors? Wow. There is just something about harvesting my organs that bothers me. I mean, you know, that's what they call it, harvesting. I mean, I've got this fear that you know, I'm, I'm lying on the pavement after an accident, just barely alive, and then I hear, overhear two paramedics talking about harvesting my organs. You know, every five years when I renew my license, I seem to have the same reoccurring uh, nightmare. Uh, I dream that I am blind and in the hospital waiting to receive the eyes of a man who was killed pulling out in front of a truck he didn't see. Yeah. You know, there were a number of things I didn't see before becoming a dad. I mean, I, I didn't know that simply changing a diaper could make you throw up. <laughs> I didn't know going to the bathroom by yourself was actually a luxury. And I didn't know there could be so many answers to the question, why? I didn't realize that having kids would be just like going back and living in the fraternity. I mean, nobody sleeps. Nothing works, and there's a lot of vomit. You know, another thing I didn't realize, that I've come to realize, uh, I found in, in an article in U.S. News, uh, the lead article was entitled, Dad is Destiny. And, and in it, they talked about the latest research uh, that has certainly revealed that 
It's the male sperm that determines whether a child will be male or female. But the research went way beyond that. I already knew that. But the research went even further. Uh, they reported that it's dad's presence, his engaging presence in the home that's just as determinative uh, in the development of a boy into a man or a girl into a woman. I mean, the research has revealed that if dad is there, if he's engaged, if he has an engaging presence in that home, that a young boy just naturally comes to understand what it means to be a man, to take responsibilities, to embrace a a moral direction, uh, to follow through on his commitments. And he naturally takes on masculine characteristics as an initiator. He knows where he's going. And he naturally desires to want to provide and protect. But if that young boy doesn't have dad's heart, if dad doesn't have an engaging presence in his life, then he starts to become passive. He becomes directionless, doesn't know where he's going, or on the flip side, he becomes angry and rebellious. That's what research shows. Did you know research shows something similar uh, in a young woman, in a woman's life? A young girl who has dad's heart, who dad has an engaging presence in her life, uh, she just naturally takes on feminine characteristics as she plays off of dad's masculine role in the home. But if she doesn't have dad's heart, if he's not engaged, then she becomes angry develops an inner rage, or she becomes promiscuous, searching for the love she never received from a dad who didn't engage. And the article summarized by saying the key ingredient in all of it is dad's engaging presence. Gentlemen, if you're a dad, that's the power you wield. And by the way, that power can be seen in the home of an Old Testament character who was known as a man after God's own heart. Of course, the man I speak of is David. He was the king of Israel. And his impact on his home might actually surprise you. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on David's relationship with his sons, in particular, two of his sons, his firstborn son, Amnon, and his thirdborn son, Absalom. And in Second Samuel chapter 3, we find some revealing information about David's family. You can follow along with me on the screen. It says, sons were born to David in Hebron. Now, you need to know there are two places that David lived. He lived in Hebron, and then he lived in Jerusalem. This passage is recording the names of the kids born to him in Hebron. It says, his firstborn was Amnon uh, by Ahinaham, the Jezreelitess. The second, uh, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gershur, the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, 
The sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Iglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it never flatters its heroes. It describes them in their weaknesses, in living color. Now, when David, and remember, this is the young boy who killed Goliath. When he becomes king, we discover that David gets off the right path and gets on the wrong path. As you can see in the text we just read, David becomes a polygamist. Now, that was a clear violation of the law. David was obviously a man of passion. If you've read the Psalms, you understand he has a passion for God. But David also had a passion for women. And he he gave it free reign in his life. David's philosophy was one woman can't satisfy. So he took on many wives. Now, now to really help us understand the dynamic going on in David's household, uh, I think we've got to picture what it was like. Uh, I'm going to need your help. Just If I ask you to stand, I just want you to stand and hold a piece of string. But I'm going to ask Kenneth if he would be David. Would you mind being David there? Just (laughs) hang on to that. Okay, David's first wife, um, her name was Michael. So uh, can I get you, Debbie, to be Michael? Just hang on to that and I'll cut it. Okay. Now... You can stand up because I'm going to end up going underneath all this. Um, Michael was barren, didn't give David any any children, no sons. Michael, by the way, was uh, the daughter of Saul. But remember, for David, one woman would not satisfy. So if you would hold that. So David had a second wife. His second wife was a Hinnaham. Would you mind being a Hinnaham? Just stand up. Hold on to that. Hold tight. Okay. Now, Ahinoam gave David his first son, so you need to hold on to that. Okay. His first son was Amnon. In fact, Josh, would you mind being Amnon? Stand up here. So just hang on to that. Okay. Don't let go. Okay. Now, firstborn son, uh, he is the heir to the throne of Israel right here. But then David wanted to marry again. So he marries. Hang on to that. You've got to point these down. I've got to remember that. Okay. He, he marries Abigail. Would you mind being Abigail? Now, if you guys remember anything about Abigail. No, no. Uh, anything about Abigail. Abigail is, uh, was first married uh, to another man, Nabal, who dies of a heart attack. And when he dies... David was so impressed with Abigail that he immediately married her. Now, Abigail ended up giving David a son. Would you be, stand up here, okay? I, I'd like for you to be Chiliab, okay? And that's uh, David's next son, but David was not finished yet. Here, if you take another one. <laughs> David ends up marrying a woman from another country, and uh, we're going to have that go all the way... We, would you, would, would you mind being, okay, Ma'aka? Would you stand up and be Ma'aka? There you go. Just hang on to that, and we'll cut it right here. Now, you need to know that Ma'aka, if you could just pull that tight and start holding it over your head, Ma'aka, well, um, she happened to be the daughter of a king, 
uh, Talmai, king of Gersher. And she ends up having a son, so just hang on to that. And now this son, let's go over here. Actually, she ends up having two children. You know what? I, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, yeah, this, huh, I didn't anticipate that. I'm going to go back up here. This will be better. Okay. Now, her, her son, yeah, just hang on. I'm going to pull on it. Her son was, here we go, Absalom. Absalom, would you stand up here? Come right over here. Just hang on to that. Okay. But she also had a daughter. In fact, this is, this is David's only daughter. And the daughter's name was Talma, uh, um, Talmud. Wait, there we go. Tamar. Tamar. Uh, but David was not finished yet. Here we go, David. Got another one for you. Uh, David then married Haggith. Would you mind being Haggith just for a moment? Okay, y'all, y'all are so helpful. And then hang on to that. Haggith ends up um, having a son. And Haggith's son is Adonijah. Would you mind being Adonijah? Just hang on to that. This will make sense when I finish, okay? Okay. And then you got David. Here we go, David. Uh, David's not finished yet. Um, Abital, uh, he ends up marrying Abital. Well, would you mind being Abital just for a moment, okay? And just, just hang on to it because Abital has a son and his name is Shimea, okay? And then, whew, David, Marries again. This time it's Igla. Okay. Do, do, would you mind being Igla? Just real quick. Okay. There we go. Hang on to that. Now, I- Igla has a son, and his name is Ithrium. Would you stand up and be Ithrium? Yeah, just hold on to that. Okay, stand up. Hold it over your head. Yeah, but David's not finished yet. David then moves to Jerusalem, and he takes on more wives. I mean, one of his wives out of Jerusalem is Bathsheba. Huh. Would you mind being Bathsheba? Okay. Now, just a few things about Bathsheba. You know, they had an illicit relationship. In fact, Bathsheba begins carrying David's child in order to hide that. David has Bathsheba's husband murdered so he can marry her. And Bathsheba ends up giving David four sons. Four sons. First son is named Shemua, named after the whale. Would you be Shemua? Okay. Next son was Shobat. Shobat, would David, would you be Shobat? Stand up. Okay. Next son is Nathan. Okay, Nathan. Would you mind being Nathan? Stand up. Okay. And then his most famous son is Solomon, who was considered the wisest man on earth. So you look wise, Rich. Why don't you hang on to that? Okay, now, stand there. Hold those things over your head. Okay. In all, David ended up having... Eight wives, 19 sons, one daughter. 
Now, what would you do if you grew up in a family like that? I mean, can you imagine? Eight wives, 20 kids, not to mention kids born by concubines. I mean, can you imagine the arguments, the disagreements, uh, the demands, the jealousy, just the whining and yammering going on? I mean, I found it difficult enough having one wife and three kids. I can't imagine eight wives and 20 kids. Okay, you guys can sit down. Thank you for your help there. You know, when we think of David, we tend to think of a, of a man who just sat out in the pasture uh, talking to God. He was known as a man after God's own heart. And, you know, all that is true. But something happened when he became king. I mean, cracks must have developed in his armor. He, he, he changed. And it's in the midst of this family we just saw out here that this boy here, Absalom, is born. Now, here's what I want you to remember. Remember, Absalom is the son of Maacah right back there who is the daughter of Talmai, king of Gersher. It'll be important later. So 20 years goes by, and David has got himself buried in the affairs of state, little time at home, lots of time with the army, or in the office, and then tragedy hits. David ends up having an affair over here with Bathsheba. Now, here's what I want you to know. When David has his affair with Bathsheba, Absalom, is 19 years old. He's not a little boy that doesn't know what's going on. He knows full well what goes on. And then an event happens in Absalom's life that creates pain and causes Absalom to become bitter toward his dad, David. In fact, look in chapter 13. It says, after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Absalom, the son of David, loved her. Now, you need to know Amnon, remember he was David's firstborn heir to the throne back here, and his love for Tamar was not good. It was not right. It was wrong. Continue. It says, Absalom was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But, Absalom, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a crafty man. You know, there's a principle I learned as a kid while at camp in riflery class. And that principle was error always increases with distance. In other words, if I put a target right here, I stand back about five paces, and I pull out a pistol, the likelihood I'll hit the target, even the bullseye, is pretty good. But if I took that target and pinned it on the back wall back there by the sound booth, and I pulled out a pistol, this whole section would clear out. Now, why is that? Because error increases with distance. I've discovered over the years I can't be an effective dad 
at a distance. Now, this boy, Jonadab, well, he's a bad influence on Amnon, uh, but David didn't know about it. David thought he could be an effective dad from a distance. He was unaware of the pressures his boys were under. In fact, a research project was done a number of years ago where the researchers took 10 teenagers at a time and put them in a research room. They instructed the teenagers that they would show them a card, and the card would have three lines on it of varying length. Sometimes line A was longer, sometimes line B, sometimes line C. And then they instructed the students that the researcher would point to each line, and when the researcher pointed to the longest of the lines, they were to raise their hand. They were measuring the students' perceptions. Now, all the students but one were informed that when the researcher pointed to the second longest line, they were to raise their hands. So, the research began. They presented the first group with the first card. The researcher pointed to line A, which was obviously shorter than line B, and those nine students raised their hand. Guess how many times the one student voted with the nine? Over 75% of the time. That student said the shorter line was longest. Now, why? That's the power of peer pressure. I mean, David was not in tune with the kids his kids ran with. So Jonadab advises Amnon, hey, you need to fake sickness. Invite your sister Tamar to come in and uh, take care of you. And once she's in the privacy of your bedroom, you can have your way with her. And notice what happens, verse 14. Now, Amnon, being stronger than she, forced her to lay with him. Then he hated her exceedingly, and Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Now, what Amnon was feeling wasn't love. I mean, it was lust. He wanted to gratify his own desires. I wonder where he learned that. Where or what had he observed that caused him to think that sexual desire always has to be gratified? He learned it from his dad and all his wives. And all his concubines. See, that's the power of a dad. G- gentlemen, you may feel like you have very little influence over your kids, but I want you to know you have great influence. You have influence over them by what you do and what you don't do. I mean, why is it that abusive fathers almost always raise kids that become abusers? Hey, why do 85 or 95 percent of sexual offenders have a case of sexual offense in their family of origins? Why do almost all daughters of alcoholics end up marrying alcoholics? And why do prostitutes come from paternally deprived homes or homes in which there's incest? See, the power a father wields is like a tool uh, that takes what a dad is in here and it packs it into the next generation for good or for bad. So Amnon, well, he learned it from his dad. Now he wants nothing to do with his sister Tamar. Notice where she goes. Verse 20 says, And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has, Tamar, uh, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate, meaning uh, she was devastated in her brother Absalom's house. Now, the law was clear that a, a son should not violate his sister, and if he did, he would be cut off from the nation. Now, King David, he knew the law. But, Absalom, but Amnon, he knew David. He knew he could get away with it. You see, there was no discipline in the lives of David's sons. He had no discipline in their lives. In fact, several years ago, Houston Police Department released an insightful list of rules for raising juvenile delinquents. Listen to what they say. Number one, begin with infancy, giving that child everything he wants. That way he'll grow up to believe the world owes him a living. Uh, Two, when he picks up vulgar words, laugh at him. This makes him think he's cute. Three, uh, never give him spiritual training. Wait till 21 and let him decide for himself. Fourth, always avoid the use of the word wrong. He may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he's arrested that society is against him and he's being persecuted. Fifth, pick up everything he leaves lying around the house. Do everything for him so that he'll be experienced at throwing all responsibility to others. Sixth, Let him read any printed matter he can get his hands on. Be careful that his drinking glasses and silverware are sterilized, but let his mind feed on filth. Seventh, uh, give the child all, all the spending money he wants. Never make him earn his own. Eighth, take his side against neighbors, officers of the law, against teachers. They're all prejudiced against your child, you know. Nine, when he gets in trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with the boy. And number ten, prepare yourself for a life of grief. You will surely have it. You see, every child needs the presence of a dad pressing into his life. Did you know when a dad loves his child? When he delights in him? He gives that child a sense of significance. When he bonds with his child, he instills a belongingness. In other words, he connects with him. He instills that belongingness. When he leads or he initiates with that child, he gives them a sense of identity. And then when he equips, he trains that child, he gives them a sense of competence. I mean, look at all four of those. Love, bonds, leads, equips. You know, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about next year in our men's um, time together on Tuesday mornings. How to be effective as a dad in all those areas. And we're entitled in winning work, winning at home, the two arenas. Every man spends 90% of his time. So how can you be effective at home as a dad? We're going to talk about that for a number of weeks and then be effective with your kid's mom. And then what does success look like at work and how you... How are you effective there? Now, if you're interested, I hope you'll join us. I mean, I've got a little schedule here I'd love to put in your hands uh, if you would like to find out more. So a dad, he has got to love, bond, lead, equip. But I want you to notice what David does. Verse 21 says, And when David heard all these things, he was very angry. 
That's it, period. He gets mad, but he does nothing. The law clearly spelled out what David was to do, but when it came to David and his sons, he just had this natural passivity. Now, it's obvious David was a man of passion. I mean, he gets angry, but he won't take responsibility. I mean, passion is not bad, but passion that's not governed by principle will lead to perversion. I've learned to be an effective dad over the years. In order to be effective, I've got to master one significant obstacle in my life. It's my feelings, my emotions. In fact, Psalm chapter 25 put it this way. It says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a a city broken down without walls. Now, not submitting to your feelings doesn't mean you're not in touch with them. And feelings are extremely important. But, but your feelings will always pull you away from being governed by principle. And an effective dad, well, he must choose principle over passion in order to live courageously and be effective. But sadly, too many of us engage with our kids based upon how we feel. In fact, I'll never forget the time I blew it with my middle son, Daniel. It was a Saturday, and we were going to go someplace as a family, and he had to pick up his room before we went. Everybody was waiting on him. I'd been upstairs five, six times checking on it. He hadn't done any work in picking up his room. I came up the seventh time, and it was still a mess. And he was goofing off on the floor, and I lost it. I grabbed him by his shoulders. I picked him up over my head and I said, son, you get it picked up now. Stop messing around. And I was wrong. And it scared him. And God convicted me. And I had to go into another room and get control. And then this 41-year-old man had to go in and get on one knee in front of this 8-year-old boy and ask, tell him I was wrong and ask him to forgive me. You see, what a man is inside affects what he does, and that day was not good. A passion that's not governed by principle, well, that leads to perversion. But principle without passion will lead to rigidity. But when you have principle... And passion, that the passion is, your passion is governed by principle, that's where purposefulness is found. And that's the key to being a healthy dad, an effective dad. And that's why we're going to spend an entire year in the men's ministry looking at fathering. You know, I think that was Absalom's hope. I think he was hoping his dad would become a man of principle. Why do I think that? If you look carefully at the text, it says that Absalom really does nothing for two years waiting for his dad to act. Verse 22 says, For Absalom hated, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which was near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. So, hurting over his sister's uh, pain, 
and disillusioned by a passive dad, we find Absalom, now he gets angry and he takes matters into his own hands. He invites all his half-brothers to come to a sheep-shearing festival. Now, why? Well, look at verse 28. It says, And now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, strike Amnon, then kill him. And, by the way, that's exactly what they did. You see, David's passivity led to Amnon's violation of Tamar. Now it's superseded by Absalom's murder of David's first son, Amnon. See how it has this downward spiral? And so Absalom has to flee for his life. But I want you to notice where he goes. Verse 37, it says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, Talmai, king of Gersher. Did you see it? Do you know who that is? That's his granddad. Talmai. You tell me this boy is not looking for a dad. He's not looking for another man to press into his life to give him an engaging presence. And then chapter 13 just ends in pain. It says, And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gersher and was there three years. And the king longed to go to Absalom. The king longed to go to him. But David did nothing. David did nothing to help heal the pain in his son's heart. And so the hurt, well, it turns to bitterness. And that bitterness ends up becoming betrayal. And then in chapter 14... We discover that Joab, he's the captain of David's army. Joab observes the longing that David has for Absalom. So he makes an arrangement to bring Absalom home. And surprisingly, David agrees. But notice what David does. Verse 24 of chapter 14, it says, And the king said, Let him return to his house, but don't let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but didn't see the king's face, and for over two years, David refuses to see his son's face. His heart aches for his son, but he won't do anything about it. He won't lead courageously. He won't initiate. He won't resolve the conflict with his son. I bet many of you grew up in homes just like that where the conflict wasn't resolved. It was just swept under the rug. Maybe you had conflict with your dad, but instead of talking about it, you ignored it. You pretended it wasn't there. And so it ends up developing into this simmering discontent under the surface until you begin to lose touch with it. But you just know there's something you don't like about your dad. Now that's what's going on here. Now Absalom wants his dad to be a man of honor. He wants him to initiate. He wants him to resolve the conflict. How do I know that? Well, if you look further, you'll notice it's Absalom who petitions Joab to have an audience with the king, his dad. Verse 32. It says, Absalom said to Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here that I may send you to my dad. In other words, send you to the king. And bowed himself on his face 
to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Absalom. I mean, did you see it? David did nothing. He just swept it all under the rug. He pretended it didn't happen. There, he wants the problem to go away. Hey, Dad, your, your son, he raped your only daughter, and I just killed your son. I, I mean, either be reconciled to me or bring about the death penalty, but let's don't pretend it never happened. Can you feel the rage that's beginning to build under the surface? I mean, Absalom feels betrayed by his dad, who refuses to move in close with courage into the chaos of his son's life. And so Absalom makes a decision. Well, dad's going to betray me. I'm just going to go on and betray him. Now, the Scriptures tell us that this young man, Absalom, he was handsome. It says he was handsome in appearance from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. And he had this beautiful raven black hair. Just he let it grow for an entire year. I mean, Fabio had nothing on this boy. <laughs> and I mean, his good looks and his long hair, it just made the women swoon. And once a year, he would have a festival where he would cut his hair and they would weigh it. And the women just flocked to him. So what Absalom does is he takes his good looks. He positions himself at the city gate. And when someone comes for an audience with the king, he kind of intercepts them and says, The king doesn't have time for you. Let me see if I can solve your problem. And when he does this, notice what happens. Verse 6, it says, In this matter, Absalom acted toward all of Israel, acted toward all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, he'd already stolen the hearts of the women through his good looks. Now, following through on his decisions, he steals the hearts of the men. But it doesn't stop there. Absalom now, he goes to Hebron. That's where David's palace is located. He takes 200 men, and while there, he begins to conspire how to overthrow his dad. He appoints a, a council of advisors and even persuades Ahithophel, David's secretary of state, to join him. Look at verse 12. It says, And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, the, the Gilanite, uh, David's counselor, from the city, from Gilhal, while he was offering sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now, it's not hard to understand why Ahithophel decided to go with David. Guess who Ahithophel was? Guess who he was? Bathsheba's granddad. He never forgot what David did to Bathsheba. You know, couple decades before. And so what ends up happening, and Ahithophel uh, advises David, uh, you, you can take the palace. And he goes and he takes the palace and he wins. And then in verse 20 it says, And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, uh, Give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom 
on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Did you notice where they pitched the tent? On the roof. Where did David have the affair with Bathsheba? It was on the roof. This was Ahithophel's revenge with David. And so the story of David and Absalom, well, it ends as tragically as it began. You turn over to chapter 18, and there's a battle between David's army and the army of Absalom. And David tells his generals, guys, I want you to win the battle, but be kindly, act kindly toward my son Absalom. In other words, don't let my little boy get hurt in this. I mean, can you see it? David still feels guilty over how he's treated his son Absalom. He, he feels guilty that he never addressed the hurt his son felt years earlier. So, of course, the hurt, it turns into anger. The anger turns to bitterness. The bitterness turns to hate. And now this hate, well, it ends up turning into betrayal. And we find the very thing that gave Absalom his popularity ends up becoming his downfall. Verse 9 says, Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great tree, and his head, literally it's his hair, it caught in the tree. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So he's hanging there by his raven black hair, and when Joab finds uh, Absalom hanging there, he just takes a spear and thrusts it through Absalom's heart, killing him instantly. And then when David finds out what had taken place, I want you to notice how he responds. Verse 33, it says, And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as they went, he said thus, My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, isn't that not one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible? That David finally responds with courage toward his son in his death, that I would die in your place. But he never responded with courage in his life. You see, the story of David and Absalom is a sad story about the heartache that resulted from the unwillingness of a father to engage in the chaos created by a son's life. Now, the reality is, we've all made mistakes in parenting. There's no such thing as being a perfect parent. I mean, I've got regrets. I'm sure you've got regrets as well. But here's where real hope lies. Even though I can't be the perfect dad, I do know I can become a better dad. If I learn to lean into my heavenly dad, I mean, he, he's the one who is the great example. He is the king we, we desperately need. He is the father we long for. He is the example that we need to follow. You know what I've discovered is that he tends to do his best work redeeming things that I mess up. And all he wants is for us to move in close to him so that he can teach us how to move our kids in close to us. You see, his love for you, it never ends. 
And I also want you to know that no matter where you are in parenting, I mean, even if your parents are gone, or your, your kids are gone, and you think it's too late, I want you to know it's never too late. It's never too late. So how do you engage? Well, you begin with a posture of apology. You look for something to admit you did wrong. Seek their forgiveness. And then you pursue them with common interests. Now, why? It's because, Dad, whether you believe it or not, you are destiny when it comes to your kids. You know, there's nothing quite like the love a parent has for a child. Uh, and if you are a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, no matter what age that child is. Uh, and you can even see that in the story we just looked at, how David wept for his son. It, it is a love of unending uh, size. But did you know the love that a parent or a dad has for his son or daughter is just a mere shadow of God's love and delight? For you. In fact, if, if you would like to know about how God can become your heavenly father, heavenly dad, and how you can draw close to him, we would love to chat with you about that. I want to invite you down to the hearth room after the service, third door on the left, and we would love to engage with you there. I want to thank you for coming and hope you guys have a great Father's Day and we'll see you back next week.